west of the rockies i'm frank thank you guys for sticking around i know it's late but man oh man do we have a great show lined up for everyone tonight i hope everybody's doing good it's uh, we're living in an interesting times to say the least a lot going on in the world and tonight's guest is going to be a, a great source of information to help everyone kind of sort out some of the stuff that's going on out there especially in the field of ufology or uaps i guess that's the newer term uh, we're going to stick to UFOs for this interview, so uh, hopefully everybody will be okay with that. Again, my guest tonight will actually be speaking at the Contact in the Desert Conference. That will be taking place June 25th through June 28th, and this was meant to be, as usual, in person, but as we all know, we're living in a different world, to say the least. And it will be a virtual conference. So go to contactinthedesert.com. You can get your tickets. And she's going to be one of many, many great speakers there. And uh, you're going to be able to uh, really get a great overview of uh, many areas of this uh, UFO phenomenon. Now, I'm going to read a little bit from the uh, bio. that It's on the Contact in the Desert website. Cheryl Costa is an upstate New York resident and a New York native who saw her first UFO at the age of 12. She's a veteran of two military services, the Air Force and the Navy. Cheryl is retired from a 32-year career at Lockheed Martin as a senior data security analyst. From 2013 to 2019, Cheryl wrote the wildly popular UFO newspaper column, New York Skies, for Syracuse New Times. She has been presenting UFO sighting statistics at UFO conferences for five years. Cheryl is an expert in UFO data forensics utilizing big data. She's the recipient of the IUFOC 2018 Researcher of the Year Award. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from the State University of New York at Empire State College in Entertainment Writing and Production. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome our guest tonight, Cheryl Costa. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate it. It's always uh, a, a great honor for me to talk to somebody as well versed as you uh, on the topic of UFOs, uh, especially in the times that we are living in currently. Uh, it seems like uh, it, it's finally become mainstream to talk about this phenomena. I was reading a little bit about you online and it says that you had your first UFO sighting at the age of 12. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It was a late August afternoon, uh, about three weeks before school started again. Um, the corn was higher than the car. We were coming down from an uncle's farm a Sunday afternoon, and uh, clear blue sky. And suddenly my mother had my father pull the car off the dirt road a little bit. And uh, she pointed out in the western sky, and there was this, well, it's about 4.30 in the afternoon, there was this bright silver ball parked out there, sitting there like a rock. And she told me, you know, at that point, it's figure 65. NASA had, only, NASA had only been around about five years itself. 
agencies. It might be NASA. It might be the Air Force. It could be a weather balloon. Uh, it could be people from another world. Now, as a 12-year-old, that, that got my attention. My brother and sister were toddlers, so they were kind of oblivious to it. And we sat there and watched it for 10 or 15 minutes, talked about it, Mom and Dad and I. And then we got back down on the state road. And we're down the bottom hill, turned left, and got on the state road to head home. I crawled up in the big, that big window, that big old Chevy Impala we had, and sat there and kept looking at it, saying, who are you guys? Who are you guys? You know, that kind of thing. And when it decided to leave, it was like something we didn't see probably in special effects in movies until the late 80s, early 90s. It was that gone kind of thing, you know. And uh, it, it changes you. You see a thing like that. And uh, at that point, you know, teenagers and moms and moms and dads are stupid. Mom and dad are stupid. But my mom and I actually developed a relationship. We might not agree on a lot of things, but we do agree on this topic matter. And uh, when I was in high school, I got books at the library. She got books at the library. We talked to each other about what we read, kind of like little book reports with each other. And uh, when Don Danigan's book, Chariot of the Gods, came out in the late 60s, uh, our copy was the paperback version of it, and uh, she dog-eared on the top of the page, I dog-eared on the bottom of the page. The book was destroyed because of that. But that was what we first saw, and um, I, I guess my next sighting was about uh, six years later. I was 18, 19 years old. I was in Cameron Bay, Vietnam. I was in the Air Force, and it was Christmas Eve, 1971. And a friend of mine and I were walking down to the base chapel to go to midnight mass for something to do. Okay? And off in the western sky, gazillion stars in the sky kind of night. And uh, not a lot of light pollution where we were. And as we were walking down to, to the base chapel, off we saw the western sky, this thing streaking across the sky. And we knew it wasn't a meteor, and we thought, yeah, it's a jet. It's <laughs> over in Vietnam, you know. And then it stopped. And helicopter our, our jets didn't stop like that in those days. And helicopters didn't fly as fast as what we had seen. And my friend looked at me and says, what the heck is that? I said, you know, if that's what I think it is, it's going to start dancing around like a fairy. I'm darned if it didn't. And then it took off. You know? Neither one of us had our mind that midnight mass when we got there. Believe me. You know? So... Um, I always kind of followed this stuff all through my adult life, but I was in the military. I was in the military almost 10 years between two services, the Air Force and Navy. And um, so I really, in the kind of clearance I had, I really couldn't join things like move on, things like that, big brown on that kind of thing. And then right. I went in, when I got out of the military, I went to work for a defense contractor. <laughs> so I really wasn't free of my clearances until like 2011. Wow. Okay. And, and that's when I started writing a newspaper column about the topic matter. And during the course of writing a newspaper column for seven years, we, uh, my spouse and I got very interested in doing this uh, citing statistics. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, during all of those years, did you hear about other people's sightings in the military, like friends of yours? No, no, not the military. The military, you never hear about it in the military. But, you know, there were, there were magazines, there were newsletters and stuff like that. And anything that came with, anything that I saw someplace in a magazine or something like that, I, I picked up and read. 
But, you know, like after 1968, though, after the Condon report to Congress, which is kind of what we're feeling the effects of now, here we are 50 years later, the government doesn't know as much as we think they know about UFOs. And that's because the Condon people told them there was nothing to be gained by studying them. And thus there was no money and nobody wanted the stigma of doing it. And it wasn't until the Navy started getting buzzed here about 20 years ago that anybody really started paying attention. And even then, it didn't happen until only a few years ago when maybe intelligence stepped up to it. All the defense intelligence agencies all kind of said, no, 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 we don't want to touch this. Wow. And uh, Secretary of, uh, the guy who replaced Mellon, uh, Christopher Mellon, uh, Mr. Radcliffe, he came out and said that recently on Fox you know, a couple months, a month or two ago said that nobody wanted to touch it. If that had been a Chinese plane or a Russian plane, they would have been, everybody would have been all over it. But it was this topic matter. It had a stigma. Nobody wanted to touch it. And Lou Alessandro confirmed all this stuff, too. He never could get anything up to Secretary Mattis. So, you know, I interviewed him three times. So, uh, yeah, there, there, was, there was a problem of material being moved up the chain of command. And I think part of the reason that the I don't know if you read a few weeks ago that the uh, Inspector General, uh, uh, Department of Defense uh, Inspector General, has gotten involved. Basically, what they're what the reason they're involved is because stuff like Lou not being able to report up the chain of command and the Navy guys out there not being able to talk about it or to be able to get it to an intelligence agency. This is a, fa- a, a, a failure of the chain of command reporting system that the military prides itself on. Okay, this is a failure of that, and in a way, it's a, a bit of a dereliction of duty somewhere along the line, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And um, it needs to be corrected, and that's what the IG is getting involved with. You know, I always felt like there was a, 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 a big, yeah, disconnect between agencies, uh, or there was very little uh, sharing of information, and I've always felt to a degree that it was almost like intentional. But it sounds like what you're telling me is, is is really not the case. It just sounds like there there might be a bit of a disorganized system when it comes to dealing with this type of reports. Well, remember, remember they discovered the nine eleven commission found out that the, the, all the all these security agencies, the FBI, the CIA, all these people, none of them were sharing data with each other. Everybody had a piece of the puzzle, and. One of the things that Alessandro is saying right now, and I agree with him, is that this is probably a big intelligence failure on the scale of 9-11. That we should, you know, Dr. Condon filed that report back to Congress back in 1968 and basically said he said that there was no reason to study this stuff. Nothing could be learned. That's a quote from his report. Nothing can be learned by studying these things. So that shut off money for government agencies to do it, academia to do it. Air Force got out of the Blue Book business, mm-hmm. all this stuff, and what do we have? We have a 50-year hole of people in the government not studying. Now, a lot of people say, oh, the government knows more than they're telling it. Tiny pieces of the government may know about it, about it, but think about this a minute. We've had three generations of turnover in the military, uh, no, two generations of turnover in the military, and Normally, a generation is considered 30 years, but if you look at military people retiring in 20 years, we've had three generations of military people turn over since then. And some of these people are saying, why Why are we under this stuff? <laughs> you guys did it. 
<laughs> you know, your predecessors did this. They shut this down. And so we're 50 years behind understanding what these things are. And I think right now, when you read some of the uh, articles on, on the current, you know, or the newly released footage uh, from the Navy and, and these UFOs, there is a certain undertone of fear in, in the sense that it sounds like the government doesn't know what these things are or where they're coming from. Do you think that we should be uh, rightfully so afraid or, you know, as some people in the UFO community uh, look at these sightings, are, are these kind of like benign crafts? And we'll talk about a little bit about what they could be and where they could be coming from, but interested to know in your uh, answer. Well, the way I look at it, now, remember, I, I, wrote, I, I wrote a newspaper column for seven years, from 2013 to 2019 when the paper went out of business, okay? Mm-hmm. And 239 articles. And one of the things that I saw consistently was uh, this, this idea that the polls kept coming out. And people, 80% of Americans felt that the government wasn't telling us what it knows. And what I've seen lately is um, they don't know as much as they think they know. Mm. Um, President Obama said, yeah, and, you know, first thing I did is ask him if there was a lab someplace where we dissect these guys and da-da-da-da, and he was told no. Okay? That is just, and we don't know what they are. Okay? Now, people are, they're, they're, they, they are out there doing this, uh, lately in the news, and at least the military guys are saying, hey, this might be a threat. Well, military guys are kind of trained to think that way. Okay? I was trained to think that way. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I did intelligence gathering. I was a senior early crime warfare specialist. And right in the first chapter of the book, it basically said we gather intelligence on everybody. Our friends today may be our enemies tomorrow. Our enemies today may be our friends tomorrow. But we gather information on everybody. Okay? Fine. So here we've got this situation. People are saying, well, God, it might be an imminent threat. Um If it is an imminent threat, if it really is, the Chinese or the Russians have leapfrogged us by a generation in aircraft, okay? Mm-hmm. But if it's the off-worlders, they've been here since biblical times. They could have stopped us out a long time ago. True. Sure. <laughs> they seem to be studying. I'll give you an example. The other day, I had a reporter call me up uh, that, about, what, two, two, two or three weeks ago on a Saturday They, they, somebody, they leaked that picture from the USS Omaha, that spear on the infrared screen there, and it went in the water, that kind of thing. Right. And I had a reporter call me up and say, hey, Cheryl, uh, uh, are spears a thing? I mean, do, do you have numbers on them? I said, yeah, they're the number three reported silhouette of, UFO, of the 35 UFOs we tracked. You know, and yeah, there were 17, over 17,000 of them in the last 30 years, you know, or the last 20, 20 years. And the guy about fell off his chair. I said, this is how much stuff you guys don't know. This is how much, because you all ignored it because it was, oh, that fictitious uh, uh, imaginary thing. Okay. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, 2015, I retired from aerospace in 2011. And, and I went back to finish the bachelor's degree I really wanted Okay, mm-hmm. it was in arts and entertainment. Okay, entertainment writing and production, and I got accepted into a master's program 
when I graduated in 2015. So I go to this boot camp weekend for this uh, liberal studies uh, uh, master's program. And during the course of the three days of the, week, of the weekend, you know, sort of boot camp thing that kind of all accustomed to the professors and how they do things, uh, the chair of the department said to me, so what are you thinking of uh, doing? You know, you're one of our older, older people. And I said, well, I, I write a newspaper column on UFOs. I'd like to do a, a research, a, a major research thesis on, on UFO sightings. And she, she scowled at me and she said, oh, well, you can't do a master's degree on, on, a, on an imaginary subject. <laughs> wow. So I dropped out of the, I dropped out of the program and produced the first UFO sightings desk reference back in 2017. Instead, that was my master's work. And this new pink book that we just published, uh, has about another hundred pages to it and is even better than the first book by far. And as far as I'm concerned, um, that's my, that's my PhD. You know, not that anybody's going to give me a master's and PhD for the work, but, um, we're going to make an, uh, Linda and I are going to make an argument to State University of New York at some point, especially if the military comes out and says these things are real. Uh, we're going to take those works up there and throw them up on the table and say, you know, uh, this is what we did. You guys aren't doing it. Where's my master's and PhD? You know, and I plan to do it. We both do. No, that sounds great. And, yeah, well, you know, somebody's got to shake things up. I mean, my argument was to the one professor, I said, you know, what if I've got material? I looked at that same professor, the chair of the department. I said, what if I've got research and you won't look at it because you think it's imaginary? I said, just for the sake of argument. She's okay. I said, so you're telling me you're like the people who wouldn't look through Galileo's telescope, right? Uh, boy, did she get embarrassed. <laughs> That's a great analogy. But this is this is something we're going to have to deal with. The UFO research, the really valid, valid UFO researchers, are going to have to deal with the academic community coming out and telling, pounding on their chest that they're the only real experts, and they aren't. They aren't studying this stuff, and they're the, like the idiot that wrote the op-ed piece for the New York Times today, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Adam Frank. Oh no, there's nothing to this stuff. You know, you can't do. You can't justify anything by um, unreliable observers. You know, and uh, he even called the Navy people unreliable. Okay. Wow. And uh, I had somebody the other day ask me how many of uh, my best case studies. I said I don't have case studies. I've got 167,632 eyewitness accounts. That's the way I approach it. And that number, the 167,000 uh, plus. That's only from 2001 to 2020, right? Yeah, but okay, okay. Well, let me qualify that. When we published our first book, we had 121,000 in it, okay? Mm-hmm. And everybody, I had all these old-timers come and say, oh, why didn't you go back 40 years, okay? Right. For this book, I didn't include the data, but when I, when I harvested the information to do this book back in January, uh, I asked Wufan to give me a dump from 1960 to 2000, just date. I said, I don't want the shapes. I don't want the narrative. I just want the dates so I can measure magnitude. Okay. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I did the same thing with National UFO Reporting Center. I just wanted the magnitude. And that 40 years, the data that they had amounted to all, combined amounted to 13,150. I've got that many in 2012, 2013, 2014. Wow. 
okay, each year. Okay, so, uh-huh. you know, 40 years where I've got one, and the 21st century has been the golden age for us to record these things because one of the key things people don't understand is the drivers are, well, okay, this, I'm gonna, this is the science here, okay? The drivers, people always say population. They need to work on population. Population is, is a major driver. The next one is temperate weather. We find that there's weather pattern, weather pattern, um, Temperate weather, uh, latitude weather, weather pattern differences that affect uh, affect sightings. If it's like up in the northern states, you have the peak sightings. In fact, the majority of the sightings happen July and August. You move down to the middle level states like Virginia and go across the country, and that peak comes down. The rest of the year, uh, sightings come up. You get on to Georgia, it's statistically flat, and if you go to deep Florida or deep Texas. It actually dips in the summer because it's bloody hot. That's hmm. temperate weather. The next driver that we discovered, and we discovered these back in 2017, the next driver was leisure time. Okay? Mm-hmm. We knew leisure time was a driver because when you looked at UFO sighting reports, usually we were out walking the dog. We were out for, you know, out for a smoke. We were out for a smoke walking the dog. I went outside on my break from the factory at 2 o'clock in the morning, had to have a smoke. That I, we, we saw this consistently. There was always a, uh, I was out there doing something of my own, and there it was. Uh, we were coming out of Bible study night, and there it was. You know, it was dark, you know, we thought. So that those were major drivers. Now, what we've discovered since then, hours of darkness is a major driver. From 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon to 11.30 at night represents 68 to 75% of the sightings, and that is consistent almost everywhere in the country. Okay? The other 16 hours of the day uh, only represent about 25% of the sightings. Wow. Okay? And then the next driver, uh, we have drivers and influencers. The next driver was access to broadband. Okay? If you don't have broadband, you're in rural areas, you can't report them or report them as easily. Right. Now, then there's influencers. The influencers amount to proximity to large bodies of water, Great Lakes, oceans, uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, that kind of thing. Proximity to toxic ecosystems. This is a colleague of mine discovered that they tend to be loitering. People say, oh, we're loitering around our nuclear power plants. You know, No, they're loitering around our our brown fields, our dead oil fields, our strip mine towns, our dead coal mines, uh, all brown fields, that kind of stuff. They're loitering around our our major geographical faults. Oh, and there's a thing called the generational effect. Okay, Certain places that had very historically big UFO sightings, we'll say like the Battle of L.A. in Los Angeles County, right. or the Phoenix Lights in Maricopa County, Arizona, okay? There's a thing we think is the generational effect. Um, Grandpa or mom told us all about that thing they had many years ago. And there's this tone with the newer generation. If they saw something cool, maybe I'll see something cool if I look up more often. So there there are these hard drivers, and then there are these things that are influencers. That is really interesting. I mean... uh, A lot to this. Yeah, no, and and all of these factors... um, when you read different reports, uh, yeah, you you will hear one to several of these being mentioned in the sightings. One of the things that I wanted to ask was, 
you mentioned LA and Phoenix. What are, you know, like the top three places that come to mind that are just active as far as UFO sightings based on, on the years that you uh, states, studied? A state, a county, or city. Let's do states so that the folks at home, if, they're, if they live there or nearby, they can okay. uh, be aware. This is easy. That's easy. That's okay. easy. Since 2006, California, Florida, and Texas are the top three. Okay. Wow. California's number one. Uh, for the last 20 years, it was uh, California was number one with 21,013. Florida had 11,043. And Texas had 9,408. Okay. Now, the net in the top 10 states, the next uh, seven states, usually Washington, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, that's all right, Colorado sometimes in there, they play musical chairs. Mm. A couple of years ago, New York State was number six. This year, it's number four. Okay, uh, you know, that type of thing. Gotcha. Those states kind of play uh, musical chairs. Now, before 2006, Washington State was a big major player. They, they, were, they were cycling with California, Florida, and Texas. Now, people say to me all the time with population, they say, well, California is number one because they got 40 million people in population. Okay, but that doesn't hold up with other states. So I tell people, California is a unique animal. It crosses nine lines of latitude. nine different kind of climate type things going on. Population bases are different. Okay, they've got a huge amount of ocean, uh, ocean body um, stuff going on. And oh, by the way, we also know down there around Catalina Island in that restricted Navy area, that's where all these these uh, texts and stuff were. Okay, so you know, California is a weird animal by itself, but step back away from that and look at Florida and Texas. Florida has many more sightings than does Texas, but they have half the population of Texas. Mm -hmm. But they've also got um, uh, 1,200 miles of, of, of shore space, you know, ocean ocean content, that kind of thing. Right. Um, New York State and Washington State have different population levels, okay? They have similar numbers but they have different population levels. But they got other things going on in the state that impact it. Okay, and this is how we discovered some of these drivers. Okay. Um, now, that's the states. Now, let's take a quick look at counties. Los Angeles County is number one. Maricopa County, uh, Arizona, essentially Phoenix, is number two. Um, Cook County, Illinois, right up there in the Great Lakes, number three. Wow. Um, San Diego County, California is number four. King County, Washington is number five. Okay, and two more counties in California, that kind of thing. Clark County, Nevada is number eight. Okay, now we know, you know Clark County, Nevada, Vegas, Area 51, da da. Okay, right. Top cities. Phoenix is number one. Well, uh, last, again, for your listeners, this is the last 20 years, okay? Right. Uh, 1,221. New York City, 971. And when we say New York City, we are talking New York City, Manhattan Island. There's five boroughs. We tend to look at everything from the context of, um, of the counties, okay? New York, New York County has five boroughs, which are technically five counties. Okay? Gotcha. Uh, Las Vegas is number three. Okay, 970. Los Angeles City is 764. Seattle is 733. Portland, Oregon is uh, uh, 712. Chicago 700. That gives you the idea. Wow. In, in the in the book uh, this year, what we did, 
uh, we, when we printed the summary for the United States, uh, we did averages, we did the charts, obviously, we did the top every state, we, including the United States, we did top 20 counties, top 20 cities. And if you go into your particular state, there's the top 20 counties, top 20 cities, provided they had 20 counties. There's places like Delaware and like that, uh, and a couple of New England states only had a half a dozen counties or something. Gotcha. Um, so we broke it down like that, okay, so people can get that information. We're going to come out with a series of individual state books because a lot of people wanted to know what it comes down to the city. And in, in this net desk reference, we only go to states and counties. So all their numbers mm-hmm. okay, for 20 years, every year, okay, uh, and by shape. Uh, and what happened was uh, if we tried to do it by right down to the municipal level, just the printout for the municipal level, the state, county, and municipal level would be 6,800 pages. That's three Oxford dictionaries stacked side by side on top of each other over a foot thick. Wow. You can't make a book like that. So what we're doing is individual state books. So if you pick, pick up a book that says uh, UFOs, UFOs in the uh, what state are you in? Uh, California. Okay. Well, let's see. UFOs in in the, uh, in the skies over California or over California. Um, it's probably going to be about a, a 520-page book. Wow. Because going down to the municipal level and also to that municipal level showing what shapes they had in those years. Um, it's going to be it's going to be a thick printout, but it's going to be a decent book to have. You know, it's going to be right. the proverbial you know get us book of records to take into your favorite pub and say, hey, what's your town got? Ah, you know, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Um, uh, so that, that's kind of where we're going. We're going to produce a 50, 50 individual state books. Uh, these are not desk references. These are going to be just an analysis of each state, and we're going to do all thirty five shapes. So it'll be total by the time we get all done with this, it's going to be about eighty five, ninety books altogether. That sounds it'll incredible. Be the largest. It's going to be the way we've come up with a we've come up with a rapid production process for producing these things. We we make everything that we write up, all the write ups. We don't sit down at a, at a word processor and start typing. We build all the modules of everything we want to talk about as separate PDF articles or spreadsheets or report sheets or whatever. And then we just assemble them and they'll be acrobat into a book. You know, and make it one big PDF and ship it to Amazon. But, um, <laughs> nice. Um, that's how it's done. It, it, this took this took a lot of met my my methods engineering professor from college would be proud of me. He really would. But uh, that's what we're going to do. And it, when we produce these total total of eighty five ninety books, it will be the largest uh, largest collection of published UFO data in human history. That's incredible. It really is, and it just goes to show. Um, you know, it's funny because, like I said, with all the recent news on UFOs and, and the government, uh, you know, acknowledging that there are these crafts out there. I've had a, friends that previously were skeptical of this whole thing come out and almost, you know, they, they are surprised that the magnitude of this phenomena, you know, and when I hear you describe the number of sightings and when you put them in a book, how big a book can be. Um, it really lets you know that, you know, this stuff has been out there this whole time. Do you think that people choose to be skeptical? I mean, is that is that even an, an option today to say, well, I, I still don't believe it, considering the amount of information and acknowledgement from uh, our government 
that this stuff is out there. Well, it's bigger than that, and this is this is what's goofy. Um, uh, there was a show had a, had both Linda and I on the other night together, and um, Linda, I, me, I'll sit here and have a calm conversation with you. Linda is the one with the science degrees. I got the arts and entertainment degree. I've got the top hat and the cane. She lets me go out and do the. Uh, the conferences, <laughs> you know, I'm not as scared to go in front of 5,000 people and talk. Um, but she's got the science degrees, and uh, she tends to shoot from the hip of two machines. I think the modern term is unfiltered, um, and uh, she ate the host alive because uh, the argument he start to go off on this thing. Well, we need to get the physics people really involved and says the hard sciences have had it for 70 years. Mm. You know, your field investigators and all this stuff. A lot of hard sciences people were invested with MUFON investigators and things like this, right? It's the hard science who want a tin can and want to be want to sample the thing to exploit the technology. What they're missing is, uh, and I've reached out to several colleges up here and uh, got laughed off the campus when I, I tried to reach out to the soft sciences psychology, anthropology, sociology. Um, you know, you can't talk, uh, You can't go to the local uh, mental health association and uh, uh, say, hey, I got a person here who, who was uh, touched by off-worlders or, or is an experiencer, and they say, yeah, right, they can hang up on you. You know, right. we've got a big, we've got a big ostrich head in the sand problem with this topic matter. Like the professor told me with my master's degree, uh, it's an imaginary topic. Right. You can blame the CIA. They went to great lengths uh, with uh, World Weekly News, things like that, to convince everybody this is all silliness for the last 50 years. You know, so the government kind of painted us into a corner by trying to parade us all down. I mean, remember the movies in the 80s? It's some, somebody saw a UFO in the movie. Hey, well, Frank, did you see that? And Frank would look at you and say, no, and you didn't either. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, uh, so it's, give me an example. There is a loose possibility because Linda and I have written the only book of statistics on UFOs published since Project Blue Book quit in 68, there's a good chance we could end up in congressional hearings. I've had several people call me about it. Wow. If we have congressional hearings, mm-hmm. especially if it's on a scale like what Steve Bassett did, you know, a real congressional hearing. And if we got called, you know, um, yeah. you know why our book is pink? No, uh, tell me. that That's something, yeah, that okay, I did notice. A, well, the, one, uh, the other one we did was white, and we made it look we made it look like a government report. That's why it's white and boring. Gotcha. Okay, that's the 2017 book, okay? Mm-hmm. Linda worked in government. She was the head librarian at the Environmental Protection Agency for 15 years. She knew how to make the thing look like a government report, okay? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, She's the smarty penis when it comes to that stuff, right? She used to work at the National Academy of Science. Okay. Gotcha. She knew how to make it look like their stuff. Okay, this time around, we decided to take a completely different approach to presenting the material. We learned some things about the material and decided that the truth is in the shape. So we, instead of focusing on locations as much, it's all in there, but instead of making that the prominent part of the book, we actually made the, the study of the shapes. Um, I've got a shape chart in there for every single one of the 35 shapes were year, month, and measured by hour.
done that before. And we found some incredible things just by plotting a graph of this stuff. Just look at the table of numbers. It doesn't tell you much, but boy, as soon as you put a graph together, it jumps out at you. you know? So um, we made the book pink once. There's a lot of misogyny in the UFO community. When our first book came out, we caught a lot of hell because we were just two dumb girls, right? two dumb women. What do, what do they know about UFOs? We got a lot of crap like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm a trans person. Of course, people go, well, a trans person, she's got to be crazy, so that book can't be any good. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we got a lot of crap for it. So we decided to make this book pink, bright pink. It's bright pink. You can flag in an aircraft with it. Okay? Right. And we did this for two reasons. One, women put this book together, and it's dedicated to uh, Coral Lorenz, uh, who was the person who started APRO, essentially a predecessor to MUFON. Okay, mm-hmm. long dead, but uh, we dedicated the book to her. But the other reason was, if we do end up in front of Congress, which we were told about this back here in 2020 during the lockdown, and we said, okay, when we do this 2020 book, we better make sure we get something good. So we also said, hey, the hey, let's make this thing bright pink. That way, we're up there testifying for Congress, and this congressman has to be thumbing to our book. It's going to be bright pink. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Troublemakers, you know. Well, I mean, it's the troublemakers that make... Math, uh, i got dead math teachers rolling. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, it's the troublemakers that, that a lot of times uh, are the ones that uh, push us forward. One of the things that I wanted to Thank ask... You. That's exactly <laughs> our thinking. Right. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask, you said you, you, you plotted, uh, or not plotted, but you included a graph with shapes. And one of the things that I've, I've always uh, wondered, especially with, with your background in aerospace, and are these craft, does their technology uh, evolve? Do you see, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like the newer models <laughs> coming out uh, with, as, as time goes on? Or are these crafts more or less remain the same throughout the years? No, we've got new ones that have showed up. There's new ones showing up. Uh, Linda made a point that the, the secret is in the shapes. Um, mm. uh, i give you an example. People are always asking, this is kind of like the movie Amadeus when the emperor came to Amadeus Mozart. Mm-hmm. He had a great, great concert and we can just take a few notes out and everything will be perfect. Right. Oh, yeah. People are always coming to me. And, and people are always coming to me and asking me, did you did you take out some UFO sightings because because of all the cooks not to crack pots? I, I get that's exactly how it's presented to me. Mm. And I said, um, so which ones do you want me to take out? <laughs> but we came up with a way of doing it. Um, basically, uh, Linda looked at all of the, with the first book and since the first book, and our argument was. Uh, and this is what Lou Alessandro was saying, okay? Uh, it's the same thing. We've all come to the same conclusion. It's the non-aerodynamic shapes. Okay. okay? And the clearly non-aerodynamic shapes. You give me a cigar or a cylinder out there, and that's probably an airliner on, on the oblique. Okay? I'll take that. I'll say that that's exactly what that is. Okay? okay. But give me a square. Give me a rectangle. Give me a diamond. Give me a sphere. Give me a teardrop. Give me an egg shape. Give me a Saturn shape. Give me a disc. That's not the same thing. Okay? So we isolated down, and it came out to be about, we used to have a chalk talk. We used to tell people, okay, you don't believe some of these things are right? Okay, we'll take 70% off the top. This would be on presentation chalk talk. And we'll keep 30%. 
Well, ultimately what it was was 68% was what we really needed to take out and 32% was a non-aerodynamic shape. Now, I'll give you an example. Of the 167,632, 53,000 and change are the 32% of the non-aerodynamic shape. Okay? That amounts to uh, when you divide it by 20 years and get an average of 20, you know, so much per year, and then you take it down and divide it by 12 months, okay? It comes down to, uh, over 20 years, about 224 per month, every month for the past 20 years. That amount, if you divided it by, if all states were equal, they are not. All mm-hmm. 50 states are not equal, but if all 50 states were equal, Every single state in the union for the last 20 years would have at least four exotic events a month, or basically one a week for the past 20 years. Wow. That's really thinning it down. Mm-hmm. And I just did it for, uh, are you in the Los, uh, Los Angeles area? Yeah, correct. Okay, okay, Los Angeles County. Okay, I got that number right here. I did this for somebody else. Um, Los Angeles County, for the last 20 years, had 4,330 sightings, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, when you when you take it down to that 30%, I didn't say 32%, I'm going to say 30%. We take it to 30%, that makes it about 1,290 or 1,300, uh, 1,300 for, the, for the 20 years. Divide that by 20 states, that's 65 a year. There are 20 years, rather, 65 a year. Divide that by 12 months, and that comes down to 5.4 exotics a month, or 1.5 exotics per week for the past, every week for the past 20 years. Wow. Just in L.A. County. Right. Okay. That People say, well, it only takes one. Yeah, okay, well, you guys get one a week. For California, it was something like six. Now, let me give you an average on California, which is something wild. California has an average of, number of sheets of paper there in front of me. California has an average of about 1,050 a year for the past 20 years. Now, it's, it's, not, it's not exactly that every year, because every year is a little different, up and down, up and down, okay? And then California averages about, these are averages, about 87 a month, okay, about 88 a month, about 20 a week, okay, about three a day. Wow. Okay? Mm-hmm. That... So you guys get a lot of sightings. In there, uh, at least three a day, okay, if not, if not more. Um, and that, that's a big deal. That's a big deal because you guys do get a lot. The United States, on the other hand, averages about 8,000 a year, about 700 a month, about 160 a week, and about overall about 22 to 25 a day. There are some days, depending upon where you are, you could, I, I've actually got a chart that goes day by day. Literally, January 1st all the way to December 31st. Wow. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I've got all 20 years across the top. And it's 12 sheets long. It's 12 port, um, landscape sheets uh, printed out. Okay? I'm legal. Okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I can look at any one day for the past 20 years. I've got another one I can do all 50 states across the top and go day by day down the side. And, of course, that's a 240 uh, 240 pages, and in color, it would cost uh, almost $300 to print at Staples. So wow. <laughs> I don't do that very often. <laughs> right. But um, the, the, the deal is there are days, 
that there are plaques. To give you an example, I've identified somewhere between 75 and 150 individual days in states that have almost nothing going on most of the time. Give you an example, Indiana. Here's a good. Here's a really good example. Uh, Indiana averages about 16 a month, maybe three a week. Okay. <sighs> I identified one day, uh, April 16th, 2008, they had 25 in one day. That is equivalent to almost three months worth of sightings for them in wow. one day. Okay? Right. Did you ever hear about it? Mm. I identified three other flap events like that in Indiana just that one year alone. Like that. Texas, a different other year, but different years, different states, different days. But I've identified all these places you've never heard of. And there was no coverage of it. Remember, the kind report in 68 told the newspaper, no, there's nothing to see here. Don't print any stories about them. Okay? So until recently, we haven't seen very much press about this stuff, except maybe at the local level. Even then, the local level stuff never made it up into national news. In fact, I've, I've been writing, I've been sending out press releases and letters to editors for the last two weeks with information about their individual state saying, hey, you want to do a good story? I got all the data here. Crickets. Wow. Even with all the press we're seeing right now. And one of the things that's scaring us is saying, if they do the congressional hearings, I raise this point to a couple other UFO experts that you know might be on that same short list. And I said, you know, this is going to end up being a bunch of swaggering pilots and a bunch of retired um, uh, defense intelligence spooks. Right. You know, that's that's me being cynical, but it, it could easily end up like that. Or they'll drag a couple of academics like uh, Professor Skotek, who runs uh, SETI, and get up there. And there's no such thing. Oh, they can't get here from there. You know, that, those kinds of guys. Right. You know, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'll shut up and ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's quite all right. I'm 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 fascinated to to hear all this. And yeah, no, it is it is a scary thing because I believe we are kind of at an apex right now where. The direction we take is going to dictate how this topic is going to be handled for the next decade or, or few decades down the road. And if we drop the ball now, I believe we're going to be doing a huge disservice to the UFO well, the community. Question that keeps getting asked mm-hmm. to me, the question that keeps getting asked to me, and you should be asking yourself this, why now? I've had several talk hosts ask me this, okay? Why now? And working with my colleague Thomas W. Conwell up here in Troy, New York, you should have him on sometime because people ask me, well, you got a number, but why are they loitering around that? I said, call my friend Tom Conwell. He'll tell you. He's, he's taken and put pins in freaking wall-sized maps and figure out what's going on and looked up what's in most locations. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, why now? We're at a tipping point with our environment. And anybody who has been an experiencer has come back and said, those folks keep telling us to take care of our planet. Well, one of my questions was going to be like, who do you think it's piloting these uh, crafts? You know, I've talked to people over the years and a lot of people tell me that, you know, 90% of the UFO sightings are man-made, you know, secret projects from the government. And that smaller percentage that's left, it's truly unidentifiable. First of all, do you agree with that? And secondly, who do you think, yeah, is flying these things uh, over our skies? Okay, okay, first thing. Let's go back to what I said. I throw 70% away, right? Right. That's the identifiable. 
and I include the government stuff in there. Okay? Correct. I really do. All right. Now, I even, at one point, back when I was running my newspaper column, we even threw triangles out because I kept getting all this mail from people. Mm. And I wrote a triangle article. Oh, Cheryl, you poor dumb bunnies. Those are TR3Bs. <laughs> right. But everything I've been able to find out about the uh, TR3B, it's not much bigger than a, another, some other kind of big fighter plane or bomber. Okay. It's in the same class. It's like, you know, it's no bigger than an airliner except it might be Delta Wing or something like that, right? Right. Uh, the triangle I saw in 2012 was three stories deep and about a football field or a football field and a half long. Wow. Okay? I don't think we own one of those. Wow. You know, And if we do, as a taxpayer, I'd like to know who the hell authorized it. Right. But, okay, who's driving them? All right, first thing, we don't know where they're from. You know, and of course, all your all their mainstream professors are all all blistering up now. Well, they can't get here from there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, look, there we it, it took Columbus three months to get here. We do it in six hours from Europe. It took Magellan a year to go around the world. We the space station does it in in forty five minutes. Maybe they know something we don't. Mm. Okay, and our, back in the ninth, late nineteenth century, the physicists all figured they figured they had physics figured out, all nice and settled, all nice and accounted. And guess what? The nineteen twenties comes along, and Heisenberg and a bunch of other people come up with quantum physics, and it completely put everybody on, on their ear. Okay, and every day, quantum physics is the most verifiable stuff. And it is the weirdest, strangest stuff going. Okay, so we did a lot we don't know how to do. Okay, all right. Now, who's flying them? I've heard everything from uh, galactic pilots, intergalactic pilots, interstellar pilots, inter uh, um, uh, solar system, you know, ex- uh, stellar people within our own uh, um, thing. I've heard all the same stuff there, right. but uh, inter uh, time travelers. Okay, interdimensional travelers. I'm leaning on the interdimensional stuff myself, but what I tell everybody now, especially if I'm on a mainstream show, it might be our pilots, it might be Soviet, it might be Chinese pilots, it might be uh, off-worlders of some form, form, it might be time travelers, it might be the Teamsters. I have no <laughs> idea who's flying them. I don't care. I just add them up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree with you as far as like the interdimensional thing, even though it, it is a bit out there, but um, it seems to be the, uh, well, I don't want to say the only uh, explanation, but one of the few that seems to check all the boxes when you look at the phenomena as a whole. You know, when you see how these craft behave and mm-hmm. how they seem to like appear and no. disappear and the entities that some people no. come in contact with uh, at times, it seems like, yeah, right. just interdimensional seems to be the the one explanation that I think uh, checks that off would, all that the would boxes. explain them being able to do do G force turns that we can't do that wouldn't that would homogenize a human being, you know that kind of thing. But right. what makes you think they are actually maybe they're <sighs> think of it like in the, the old movies, you know, they are on TV, you know, the, the 
people superimpose something in the picture from another camera, so to speak, you know, mm. to give an effect. Right. Maybe they're concurrent in our reality, but still existing in their own reality. The rules are different there. Mm. Okay. Right. Um, I, I, I'm beginning to lean on the fact that, that there we may have interdimensional overlap when these craft are uh, apparent. Mm. Okay. And that that's just me. That's my, my own thinking uh, because I, I, I thought about this at length and uh, that seems to be one of, the, one, of the, one of the theories. The other aspect of it is, uh, and this is coming from the metaphysical side, okay? Now, I run in metaphysical circles. I used to live in a Buddhist monastery, so we talked about some, we used to talk about some extremely esoteric stuff mm-hmm. in there, okay? Uh, we talked about stuff in monastery with our senior teachers that was t- taught 2,600 years ago, and it was pure, quant- pure quantum physics and beyond currently known quantum physics. Okay, right. But then I met in Buddhist monastery for seven years, and I'm an ordained yogi, so I tend to look at the world look at the world a little differently than most people. All right, so let's talk about what it could be. It could be. The physics are different for them, okay? But if you uh, if you guys talk to Ray Hernandez from the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation, mm-hmm. the, they wrote the book a couple of years ago, Beyond UFOs, that they, they analyzed like 4,400 uh, 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 experiencers' accounts. And he comes from the viewpoint, and him and I had a really good conversation at one of the conferences about it. And uh, what we came down to is all, you know, the paranormal community, you talk to the ghost hunters, you talk to any one of the slices of the paranormal community, and half of them won't talk to the UFO community. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. And, okay, they won't. And the thing is, it's all the same phenomena. Mm. Okay? Yeah. the same, I serve the same thing. You get into the proverbial haunted house. Well, is it people from different times in that house somehow intersecting occasionally? Okay. Is it that kind of thing? Maybe, you know. So right. there's thinking, and there's also the thinking that these things that we see, we see, they manifest the way we think we see them. Wow. So if we think we see a triangle, that's what we're seeing, okay? Um, because we manifest it that way. There's a phenomenon there, but in quantum physics, it says the observer changes the outcome of what's being observed, okay? Right. They talk about this all the time in quantum physics. So, you know, as soon as we start measuring the phenomena, it changes. And I think that that's what we're dealing with sometimes with such a wide variety of shapes. But let's, let's think they're let's think they're all tin cans, okay? Okay. Linda is of the belief that look at all the different cars we have. They're still cars, but they're all very different, right? Mm-hmm. Different models, different countries. In this case, the UFOs, different models, different approach to the physics, different societies, and a different approach to how they build the thing. That's what she feels, seems to think it is. That's really interesting. Depending on how you think, Ted. 
I'm who you talk to. There some people, there, I think it was the Blue Planet Project, says, or something like uh, uh, 7-Eleven. It was um, 11 spacefaring races in our sector of the galaxy, and seven of them have been here to visit us. You know, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I take it with a grain of salt. Is it true? I don't know. All I know is what I've added up. And the, 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 I tell people I don't talk about aliens because all I do is measure the UFO phenomena. Our colleges, our professors, our science has not gone back to basic observational science and statistical science and just basically added up and measured what we can measure. I hear a lot of professors, oh, well, we can't get it up there and get radar information and measure it that way. You know, there's other ways of measuring the phenomena. And that's what we've done. That's why we've got monthly data, yearly data, hourly data, you know, that kind of thing. Heck, I even added when we were updating the database. Um, we found out that 17% of our 48,000 database from previous, before we added 2019, 2020, mm-hmm. 17 to 18 percent people spelled the name of their city wrong. Wow. Or didn't, 3 percent didn't even fill in a town or city. So that caused problems for it. I'll give you an example. When I say they spelled the city, they did it all capitals, they did it all mixed case, they did it all lowercase. Sometimes they put an extra space in the front of it. Sometimes they spelled it out properly, but they said, you know, um, uh, Joesburg, right next to Don's gas station. You know, it, it had stuff you couldn't sort on in a data context. Gotcha. Okay? So what we did, was, and of course that threw off some of our automation that put in county data, which was critical to getting certain kinds of metrics. So what we've done uh, last August, during the lockdown, Linda and I were talking, and I said, honey, we're not going to be able to do this book next year by the way we want, unless we correct all the city and county information. So I sat down, I got a golden mail list, paid a lot of money for it, and we colored it and made it color and merged it in, you know, made the fields the same as the database and merged it in. And I did on the order of about 1,200 lines a day. It took from the second week of August to the first week of January, 650 hours to correct all the city spellings and get the counties right. And while we were at it, we added zip code and latitude and longitude. You know, mm-hmm. That gets us some other measurements we can do. But uh, in fact, I wish I had put the FIPS code in. That's the code that every county, every city has a FIPS code. Right. I wish now I had done that by FIPS because I found out that there were some, I found several mapping programs that would have allowed us to map things. Um, but you have to have the FIPS code. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of a pain. But I just had a newspaper uh, up in um, South Dakota, which only ranks number 47 in the, in the state. They only had 418 sighting reports in the last 20 years. you know. But most of them in their state was on this one Indian reservation. Hmm. Figure that, okay? Right. So they, they, they came to me and said, would you give us the data? Would you give us just the data for our state? I said, sure. So I gave my sanitized version of the data, uh, and we, we, we gave it to them, and they put it into a map. The newspaper put it into a mapping program, it's in a map of every county in their state, and colored by a density of color, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a really nice article. But, um, yeah, 
uh, there's lots of stuff we can do with this stuff. Uh, people are interested in the volume of this stuff, but some of the media still isn't interested. I've reached out to somewhere up towards 25 media organizations uh, that I can give you a hell of a story about your area, and I gave them just some samples of just what their state had in cities, like the cover sheet kind of thing, just the graph and counties and, and cities in their state, just one or two sheets, and uh, crickets. Absolute crickets. I don't know if I'm scaring the hell out of them or they're afraid to scare their readership or something like that. I hear even in my own state they won't talk to me. Wow. And, so. you know, and I find that really, really surprising considering the uh, the amount of coverage that I see uh, online and on television about the topic. But it, I, I will admit that it still feels like they're treating it like that last story they throw in at the end of the newscast, like the the wacky, funny you know, oddball story to kind of end the broadcast. And I think until they can... They still, gig, they still giggle. They still giggle and wink, wink at you. Right, right. And I feel until we, or, or until they, uh, treat this with the seriousness that it deserves, and I'm surprised that it's not getting a lot more uh, serious attention, we're going to be a, well, a bit I, stuck I wrote, into it. I, I wrote one newspaper, one of the newspapers I wrote about a week and a half ago, about 10 days ago. Um, the, the cover letter I sent them uh, with uh, with a couple with an attached PDF of just their state. I said I, um, I'm a UFO statistician, and there's only two in the country, and I'm married to the other one. You know, <laughs> kind of thing. And I said we can give you a, a really good statistical analysis of the last 20 years of UFO sightings in your state. And I got a, a one liner, two liner uh, response back. There's no such thing as a UFO statistician. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, even the people who do the, the, the science, you know, and that's the funny thing. I, I told one reporter, uh, what action, I shouldn't say reporter, was the editor, and I said, you know, I said, right now, you guys are only paying attention to government Navy pilots and stuff, like they know it all. And like, uh, like the Defense Department's going to give you hot data like I've got. You know, you're still viewing those of us who have studied this last few years as the tinfoil hat crowd, but the Navy guys, they, they're really on top of it. And I said, yeah, you're, you're, you're approaching this very wrong. And I said, there's been a lot of very good research done in the last 25 or 30 years by competent citizen scientists and really qualified people. Not that we've all got degrees. You show me someplace that gives a degree in UFOs, and I'll go take I'll go take their program. But right now, <laughs> uh, it, it's being done by multidisciplinary people, much like environmental science was done. And before nine eleven, people I I worked in corporate security, uh, IT security. Mm-hmm. We couldn't give jobs away in IT IT security before nine eleven. Everybody thought, oh, my God, that's a white socks kind of job. No, we don't want to do that, you know. And we all had degrees in zoology, English, teaching. Uh, my degree was in playwriting. <laughs> you know, right. But we all had we all had a knack in UFO stuff. I was, I was a, a penetration guru and an antivirus specialist, you know. So, But after 9-11, suddenly everybody was an expert. And I, got, I literally got drummed out of it. Wow. Okay. Right. And uh, I think it's going to be the same thing with the UFO community. Suddenly, there's going to be all these people in some of these academic environments that are going to groom the rest of us out of this. It does feel like we're at a very uh, crucial time in this field. And uh, I do believe that 
people like you are going to be the ones that are going to kind of get us over the this this hump and hopefully into a more serious and analytical study because we do need to understand what's happening um it seems like it's been happening like you mentioned earlier you know going back to biblical times and if that is the case we really should yeah. make an effort to understand why and what the purpose of this is well i really think the the environmental our environmental predicament is a big deal mm. and i think that might be part of it okay gotcha and because you know everybody was very fast blaming that or china for the for the covid mm -hmm. you know right but did you know that what covid did to us it also took, put the world in kind of like a paw and make it, make it it put the whole bloody population of this planet in a timeout right okay? right and what did we see we saw waterways clear up we saw pollution clear up so, you know places in india who had not had not been able to see the himalayas for generation i thought they could see the himalayas things like this all this very very interesting stuff that it goes back to the thing if your planet dies you die if you humans die the planet lives right okay it's that mindset and that's that's the interesting part i really think it's about this uh, about our our environmental, the, the lackadaisical. Let's look at our politics. And they're still trying to, there are people on the far right that are still trying to push the environmental thing out. Oh, we got another 30 or 40 years, you know? No, my wife worked for the Environmental Protection Agency. They predicted our predict, current predicament 35 years ago. They oh, said, wow. this is what's going to happen then. Wow. They predicted it then, and it got laughed at. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, we have this problem with laughing at something that sounds ludicrous when somebody says this, and then they start debunking, trying to debunk the science and things like this. But we've done some very good citizen science work here. Um, you know who Steve Bassett is? He's been our lobbyist in D.C. for he's a registered lobbyist, been a lobbyist center for 20, 25 years. Okay, mm. smart guy. So it's got the inside track of things. Okay, and. Uh, he saw the new pink book, and he dropped me back in. He says, Cheryl, there is nothing like this. He said, I am going to be showing this thing off in some congressional offices. Nice. So this is a good deal. This is We're going to get some, get this in front of some people. And like I said, maybe, maybe Linda and I will end up in, up in front of a... Uh, well, one day, hey, for your audience, think about this. Man. Just, just think. If Linda and I end up in front of a congressional hearing, Okay, you got two gay ladies to start with. Two old gay ladies. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're both on we both got AARP cards and are both on Social Security. Okay, okay. I'm a tranny. Okay, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So picture that picture. My editor for my newspaper was gay. My uh, was gay, and when I told him about this, he just how he just wanted to roll on the floor laughing. He said, "My God, that's going to be great," you know. Right. Um. But that, that's what we're up against here. You know, and again, Linda and I talked about this with supper time. We were saying, is that going to impact our credibility? We have people who take shots at people they don't understand even now. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, last, the last 10 UFO conferences I spoke, of, I spoke at, I put five more slides in the front of the presentation before I started and showed pictures of who I used to be and who I became and pictures of me and her getting married and jumping over the broom and said, and then the last slide basically says, if you can't 
deal with me and Linda, you're never going to deal with E.T. Wow. Start looking at people here on this planet and start treating people as who they are and stop degrading black lives matter, you know, gay lives matter, you know, all lives matter, you know, whatever you want to wrap around it. But start respecting people because we're getting very close to having this ET thing. And um, if you can't deal with the differences within our own cult, our own culture and species, you're never going to be able to deal with it, ET. That's really powerful. That That is a very powerful statement. And honestly, that is one of the truest things I've, I've heard in all my years uh, looking into this this topic. Cheryl, I know we're almost out of time. I wanted to uh, uh, ask, you're going to be at the Contact in the Desert conference on, on June 25th, 2021. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your presentation that day. What can people expect? Well, okay, my presentation, one of the things I had to do, because they kind of hit me up early and they said, we got to record these things. We had to record these things back in March. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and I was not re I was not ready. Mm -hmm. And originally, we were all supposed to. Uh, those of us who were signed up for this year were all supposed to present live last year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, COVID shut it all down. Okay. So um, I've got a. My presentation is very similar to what I gave in 2019 to people. But one thing I did do, though, since I already had built the charts for the new data book, um, I went ahead and put the new data. I put the new data charts in. Okay, so I updated the data chart so the, the, the video presentation they're going to get uh, is, is going to have some history of how we got to where we are. Um, and, you know, Dr. Conan, what, how the damage he's done, he damaged, he did to us. And then I present, um, present information about, you know, what our last 20 years has looked like and what our shapes look like. And a little bit about um, digital, uh, using statistics as digital forensics to look for hot spots for certain kinds of things, either for certain kinds of shapes or one-day events for a lot of UFOs in a place nobody really has a sighting and that type of thing. And that's the kind of thing I went with. Um, and, of course, we're all looking forward to, we've all got our shots now, as they say, or most of us do. Mm -hmm. So we're all looking forward to being able to do a live one next year. You know, so right. I think this, what might come, you know, one of the things I think might happen with contact in desert, I think we might end up in a situation where uh, this, if this video one does well, we're going to probably, I, I think a lot of these conferences are going to start doing a hybrid kind of thing where a certain amount of people are going to be there live and pay full rate and be there in the hotel and all that stuff. And then there's going to be other people who are, you know, piggyback on it with the, uh, with the, uh, with video feeds from, you know, uh, right. from the, uh, from the conferences. And I think that'd be a good thing because, I've talked to a lot of people here in my area and said, hey, we can't afford to fly out someplace and, and, and spend many days in a hotel. And we can't afford that, and uh, but we'd love to go. So these these virtual ones have been great for those people. So I think if people really pay attention this way from a marketing standpoint, we might be able to reach out to a lot more people if it's a hybrid event. But I think if anybody's going to do it, contact them desert probably will. It's going to be a great conference this year. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the The list of speakers is definitely one of the biggest ones I've seen uh, compared to years past. And as you said, I think, yeah, that the uh, having this technology available and having speakers that, you know, let's face it, a lot of uh, for a lot of speakers, it is, you know, it can be a bit taxing to have to travel and, and stay just as much as the attendees. So I think that it also has allowed speakers that normally wouldn't be able to attend to participate and uh, share their information. 
Before we go, why don't you tell people yeah, where yeah, they sure. can find your book, uh, UFO Sightings, Test Reference, okay. United this States of the, America? Okay, now, this is the tricky part. Um, you can't buy, you can only, it's, it's exclusive, the current version is exclusive on Amazon. Okay, both books are there, mm -hmm. so be careful. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, go to Amazon, and uh, it's, uh, you can go to the search for the book. You can either search on Cheryl Costa, Cheryl with a C, Costa with a C, um, and you can get that way, or you can put in UFO sightings desk reference. Okay, and then two will be available: the 2001 to 2015, which is the white book with a big flying saucer on it, and then there's the pink book with the big flying saucer on it. And that's the UFO sightings desk reference, United States of America, 2001 to 2020. The pink book is the one you want. Okay, gotcha. and and right now they got them in stock. The Amazon's got them in stock, and if you order it, like you know, if they order it today, you'll have it by Wednesday or Thursday. Oh, that's great! That's super convenient, and yeah. So, folks, definitely uh, go hit up Amazon and make sure you get the 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 pink book cover. And I can't say how much I thank you for uh, sharing your time with us tonight. It has been an amazing conversation, and I would love to have you back because. One of the things that I've been fascinated with in the last few years was that, yeah, just this interdimensional uh, theory of that could explain what's happening. And I do believe that once you start digging into that, uh, you will be surprised at what one can find uh, when when you go down that avenue. So Let um, me throw you a real quick twist on that. Oh, yeah, please. When you have me back, feel free to invite me back for the proverbial consciousness talk. Okay. Okay. Because I can give you the, the the whole paranormal and consciousness talk from the perspective of having been, you know, a Buddhist monk and a Buddhist a yogi kind of thing, mm -hmm. and I really can talk that esoteric stuff to death. <laughs> I would love it. No, that's uh, like I said, that's been my thing for the last uh, few years. I, I find it extremely fascinating, and I any chance I get to explore it further, uh, I'm I'm very happy to do so. So Cheryl, thank you so much. And uh, we My look pleasure. forward to having you on again very soon, hopefully. Thank you very much, Frank. Bye-bye now. And that was our guest, Cheryl Costa. Wow, that was some really, really amazing stuff. Uh, incredible information. Definitely, definitely, I urge you to go check out her book, UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America, 2001 through 2020. As she mentioned, there are two books on Amazon uh, make sure you get the one with the pink cover. That is the updated one. And uh, it sounds like a fascinating read. Also check out Cheryl at this year's Contact in the Desert Conference. Again, happening June 25th through the 28th. It's going to be a virtual event. So go to contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets to that. And hopefully, yeah, next year it'll be an in-person event. And maybe they'll have like a, a little bit of both because I feel like at the same time, as, as fun as it is to, uh, to be there in person, it's not possible for many people. And now with uh, all the great technology that we have, it's great that not only uh, attendees can be there virtually, but also speakers that schedules and other restrictions may not allow them to be there can still take part and present their amazing information just like Cheryl. As always, don't forget to check out the website, wotrradio.com. For a lot more cool stuff, we got some more interviews lined up. Definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash WOTR radio. Uh, give us a like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, find us on Facebook and uh, Twitter, 
all of that, just type in WOTR Radio. Till next week, take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.